Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome once again and thank you for joining me. Today is the... 29th of August, Monday morning, so I pray that you have a very good and prosperous Monday, and uh, that your work day goes well. Heavenly Father, I do give thanks, and I just praise your name for all that is done this day, and Lord, now I pray that you just bless the ears that hear this, these words that are about to be spoken that you lift their hearts, dear Lord, for you are in charge. You, Heavenly Father, I give praise in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing with uh, Know the Words of Jesus in 30 Days, and uh, it's a guidepost um, production uh, done by J. Stephen Lang. Today, if we let him go on like this, leaders fret and conspire. At the heart of it today, Jesus performs great miracles, healing the sick and even raising the dead. Yet his deeds and words cause only fear and loathing in the people's spiritual and political leaders. And the memory verse is, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures of the power of God? And that's Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Was blind, but now I see. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. A second time, they summoned the man who was blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And that's John chapter 9 verse 1 and 3, verse 24, 25, and 39. The healing of the man who was blind from birth takes up all of John 9, which bears reading in its entirety. The chapter can be summarized as follows. In Jerusalem, on a Sabbath, Jesus heals a blind man. The Pharisees question the man and inform him that Jesus is not of God, for a man of God would not heal on the Sabbath. The man insists that only a prophet sent by God could do such a great miracle. This is the first miracle after Jesus had said he is the light of the world. A key term for today, shepherds, 
Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who shows love and concern for his followers, is opposed by the bad shepherds, the religious leaders of his own people, who are spiritually empty and unfit to lead. The Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law despise Jesus, just as they despise the mass of people whom he came to save. He repeats that statement in non chapter 5. The darkness of the world is being invaded by the light from heaven, but the spiritually blind will remain blind. The man has been blind from birth, meaning he has never seen the light at all. In a sense, the man symbolizes everyone. We are all born blind spiritually, not able to see the light until God opens our eyes. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was a common belief among Jews in those days that a child might be born with a handicap if his parent had committed some flagrant sin, particularly any form of idolatry. The disciples were merely echoing the teacher of the rabbis. An affliction such as blindness was often regarded as punishment for sins, or for sins of the parents in this case. In fact, up to the age of thirteen a child was considered as part of his father, and thus his suffering might be the result of his father's sins. Likewise, a pregnant woman harboring wicked or heretical thoughts might be cursed by an afflicted child, with blindness being the punishment for especially wicked thoughts. But Jesus was not going to involve himself in theological or moral speculation about whose sin caused the man's blindness. God is in charge of the world, and God is loving, yet people suffer. How to explain that? Jesus does not just as the book of Job did not. Jesus is interested in this particular case. This one blind man's healing will manifest the power of God. and healing him, Jesus sets an example for all people of faith. When we encounter suffering or affliction, the proper response is to help the sufferer, not attempt to explain the pain. Thrown out of the synagogue, this is a cultural insight here. The parents of the man, born blind, feared being excommunicated, put out of the synagogue. The Jews recognized three levels of excommunication. The first was a rebuke valid for seven days or if done by the head of the Sanhedrin, thirty days. The second abomination lasted thirty days. The third was the Sheshrem, C-H-E-R-E-M, or ban, of no fixed termination date, and could be accompanied by curses and the blowing of a trumpet. The banned person would behave like one in mourning, going about disheveled, and not allowed in the synagogue or temple and treated like a leper, be people keeping their distance. There were twenty-four grounds of excommunication for such offenses as profaning the divine name or leading people away from the commandments, etc. Excommunication would eventually become a reality for many believers of Jesus, as he foretold. They will put you out of the synagogue, in fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you 
will think he is offering a service to God. And that's John chapter 16, verse 2. The the Pharisee's reaction to the healing is hostile and immediate. Jesus is not sent from God, they believe, since he performed the healing on the Sabbath when work is forbidden. Here it is not the miracle of healing itself that is regarded as work, but the fact that Jesus took mud and saliva and put it on the man's eyes. In their narrow view of things, Jesus has been technically making clay on the Sabbath. Also, they, at first believing the miracle is a fraud, that the man was not really born blind, instead of praising God that the man born blind is able to see, they try to intimidate the healed man, and then his parents, into denouncing the healer. The man's parents are understandably afraid of being put out of the synagogue, excommunicated from their community of faith. The Pharisees do not glorify God for the miracle, but they tell the healed man to glorify God, but not the healer whom they supposed experts in faith know to be a sinner, not a God-sent prophet. The confirmation between the simple man and the religious experts is almost laughable. They are so mired in that their own conceit about being followers of the law of Moses that they cannot praise God for a miracle. The healed man theology is much simpler and more real. A man healed him, so the man must be a God, good man sent from God. And no one ever heard of wicked deceivers doing such an amazing and compassionate deed as healing a man born blind. The experts are furious. They aren't about to be lectured in the religion by a mere layman, and one who was clearly born in sin, as his long affliction evidenced. The discussion was ended. They were in darkness, that Jesus was sent to lighten. They preferred the darkness. They thought of the healer as a notorious sinner, and the healed man a sinner as well. The two important religious parties among the Jews, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, disagreed about many things, but they agreed in their snarling contempt for the common people and unlearned, whose ignorance of the law made them lesser beings. They were the religious shepherds of the Jews, yet both groups despised the flocks, the ordinary people, and had no interest in people's salvation. Appropriately, the Pharisee's shabby treatment of the blind man is followed by Jesus' words in chapter 10 about good and bad shepherds. He is the good shepherd, the compassionate one. Raising the Roof A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was laying on. 
When Jesus saw their faith, he was he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does the fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking on their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in few view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And that's Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. This is one of Jesus' earliest miracles of healing, yet we see that form the beginning. He was being criticized by the religious people of that time. Here the critics are the teachers of the law, or scribes, the professional interpreters of the laws of Moses. This follows the healing of the leper in Mark 1, which ended with the leper telling everyone of the healing, generating such publicity that for a while Jesus steered clear of the towns and stayed in the country. Clearly the news that he had returned to Capernaum caused people to seek him out. Note that Jesus came home to Capernaum during his ministry. It was his base instead of his hometown, Nazareth. The typical house in Galilee would have had an outside stairwell up to the roof. The roof would have been constituted of wood beams about three feet apart with a space in between filled in with brushwood packed tight with clay. Typically grass grew on the roofs. It was easily broken into but easily repaired. The faith of the paralytic friends is a key part of this story. They have literally ripped off the roof in the belief that the poor man can be healed. At this point in the story, the men aren't believers in Jesus as the Messiah. They simply believe that he has the power to heal, and Jesus commends such faith. Like other afflicted people, the paralytic would have subscribed to the common idea that all suffering resulted from sin. Hence, Jesus telling him his sins were forgiven. Thus Jesus was clearly linking his divine power with the power of healing, contrary to what his enemies said. Jesus addressed the paralyzed man as techno, T-E-N-O-N, child. We have no idea how old he was, but child, or son, in many translations, showed warmth and affection. Like his heavenly Father, Jesus views all human beings as children in need of compassion and guidance. The scribes question his forgiving of a man's sins, calling it a blasphemy, for God alone can forgive sins. They were correct. Only God can forgive sins. It had not occurred to them that God might take human form. The man from Nazareth is more than a mere healer, a miracle worker. Their critical questioning goes on in their hearts, but Jesus perceives 
what they are thinking. After this, he heals the paralyzed man and tells him to rise and walk. Jesus has connected the divine power of healing with the divine power to forgive sins. He has gone a step beyond his earliest healings of a demon-possessed man and a leper. In the eyes of Jesus and the Gospel writers, the real problem for human beings was sin, and in the main problem that Jesus was sent to cure. In this episode, the real miracle, the greater miracle, is not the physical care, but the forgiveness of the paralytic sin. What kind of sin had the paralytic committed? To ask that is to miss the point of what Jesus is doing. The man might have been no better or, or worse sinner than we are. The point is that Jesus comes to bring salvation, healing, wholeness to human beings. And that involves spiritual healing, even more so than physical. Here on the onset of his ministry, he is making a rather bold statement. Through the power of God I heal. And through the power of God, I forgive sins. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Not I forgive you. Only God can forgive sins, so Jesus acting on God's behalf can do so. He has God's authority on earth, so presumably his forgiveness of sins is acceptable by God in heaven. Jesus is being true to his title in Matthew, Emmanuel, God with us. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Jesus' question to the scribes was no-brainer. Obviously, it was easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say, get up, and walk. Any faker or false prophet could say your sins are forgiven. And how could he be proven wrong? But rise up and walk was another matter. The scribes so sure of their wisdom claimed that only God alone could forgive sins and they were right it would indeed be blasphemous to claim to forgive man's sins for anyone who could not demonstrate divine power to back up his words here's a did you know sometimes translation amazingly easy the Greek word was translated paralect is Paralaton and blaspheme is Greek blaspheme. Another one, did you know? In Luke's version of the story of the paralyzed man, the man's friends did not tear through the roof, but rather removed tiles on the roof. Luke assumed that if his Gentile readers, most of whom would have had homes with tile roofs, would not understand the type of roofs the houses of the Galilee, Galilee had. Like the Pharisees in the story of the man born blind, the teachers of the law in this episode show how spiritually blind they are. A spiritual shepherd of the people, they are, they are failures, questioning the works and words of Jesus, a man, a man who had been sent from God. Go tell that fox. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. 
But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see himself. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 7, 9. At that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And he replied, Go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day. I will reach my goal in any case. I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. And that's Luke chapter 13, verse 31 and 33. The Herod mentioned here was Herod Antipas, one of the sons of the vile Herod the Great, the king who had renovated the Jerusalem temple and who had tried to kill the infant Jesus. After his death, his kingdom was divided in four parts. Among the four sons, each son having the title Tetrarch, meaning ruler of the fourth. The Gospels record that Herod the Tetrarch threw the prophet John the Baptist in prison because he spoke boldly against Herod taking his own brother's wife. Herod hesitated to kill John because he knew John was widely admired, but at a party, Herod's stepdaughter, dancing so entranced Herod that he offered to give her whatever she asked, and she asked for it and got it, the head of John on a platter. The passage from Luke 9 quoted above shows that Herod, unspiritual and yet superstitious, wondered if Jesus might be John brought back to life. Herod was a ruler over Galilee, the region Jesus grew up in, and the scene of the most of his teaching and miracles. In Luke 13, the Pharisees who warned Jesus to leave this place are referring to Galilee. Were these Pharisees admirers of Jesus trying to keep him from harm, or were they opponents trying to frighten him away? Most commentators lean toward the first view, and certainly not at all Pharisees were hostile to Jesus. They had a good deal more in common with Jesus than with Herod. However, it is also possible that these Pharisees were hostile to Jesus and wanted to leave their region, so they sought to frighten him with a death threat from Herod. And they knew, as Jesus did, that Herod had already murdered one of God's prophets. Would Herod have wanted to kill Jesus? True. He had killed John, but only after a long delay. However, it is conceivable that he might have sent word to Jesus that he wished to kill him in the hope that Jesus would leave Galilee. If Herod or the Pharisees hoped to frighten Jesus, they were disappointed. Jesus makes it clear that he will continue with his mission, and no immoral political back or hack like Herod can stop him. Jesus was not expecting the Pharisees to actually report these words to Herod, go tell that fox. It's rhetorical. The Jews could use fox to refer to the sleigh man, as we do, and Herod fit that description. If Jesus used the word in this way, it may mean he saw the death threat for what it was, a prod to get him out of Galilee or to stop teaching altogether. 
More likely, though, Jesus used fox in another way common in that time, fox simply meaning a worthless or insignificant person. Herod is not as important as he thinks. Jesus knows his destiny is to die in Jerusalem, not in Galilee, and no petty ruler like Herod can change his fate. I will reach my goal, can refer to Jerusalem, the end purpose of his mission, or both. Whatever Jesus meant by fox, it was not a compliment. Later, when he is arrested, Jesus is brought before Herod. Jesus will not say one word to him, another evidence of how Jesus felt about this contemptible character. Though he ruled over many Jews, Herod was a pathetic excuse for a shepherd of a people he ruled. His entire life, like that of his father, was one unceasing, flagrant scandal. Jesus had said nothing even remotely political in his ministry. Yet Herod, whose entire life is political scenes a threat, just as John was a threat, for John had not only protested Herod's divorce and remarriage to his own brother's wife, but he also protested, as Luke 3, chapter 3, verse 19 says, all other evil things Herod had done. In fact, Herod's divorce had been political in nature because his first marriage was to the daughter of the king of Nebetha, and his casting her aside led to war with his former father-in-law. Herod, Herod saw John, rightly or not, as a political agitator, and must have sensed Jesus was another. Surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jesus' words are a kind of mocking reference to an old tradition that any prophet whose birthplace was not mentioned in the Bible was assumed to have been born in Jerusalem. Obviously, this was a tradition rooted in the spiritual pride of the Jerusalites, who saw that their city not only as the center of the priesthood, but a prophecy as well. Jesus recalls the darker truth. Far from being the birthplace of the prophets, Jerusalem is where they face persecution and death. One Bride for Seven Brothers then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died, too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God? That's our memory verse. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Are you badly mistaken? 
and that's Mark chapter 12, verse 18 and 27. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has often criticized the Pharisees, the devout Jewish laity. Here he is confronted by the representatives of a much smaller but more powerful group, the Sadducees. This group consisted of most of the priests and their hangers-on socialites. If religion might explain the Pharisees and Sadducees in this way. The Pharisees were the party of petty, those who emphasized acting out one's religious beliefs in daily life, trying to please God. The Sadducees were the party of power, the ones who maintained the temple and the sacrifices and lived off the prophets, who saw the re Jewish religion more as an institution that needed to be maintained. Put under another way, the Pharisees tried to be the spiritual, while the Sadducees merely tried to maintain the religious bureaucracy. The Sadducees, the Jewish aristocracy, despised the common people, even though they lived off the people's tithes and offerings. They had no use for wandering rabbis like Jesus. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that the Sadducees have the confidence of the well-to-do, but no following among the people. By following, he meant that their belief were not influential, though the Sadducees were esteemed for their wealth. They were hated by the patriotic Jews, the Zealots, because they worked hand in glove with the Romans, and generally lived by Romans also. And they were hated by the Pharisees because of the, some serious differences in belief. Josephus also wrote that the Sadducees were ill-natured, even towards each other, showing a disagreeable spirit. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time, and I ask, dear Lord, that you just bless these words that were read. And Father, I just pray that uh, you enlighten those that believe, and those that do not believe, Lord, that seeds be planted, that they may get to know more about you. Now, Lord, I ask and pray that you just continue to bless the rest of this day, and I give praise in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll see you Wednesday with the continuation of If We Let Him Go Like This. Be blessed. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.